Dr. Pam McIntyre worked as a senior lecturer in a portfolio of design and social context in a school of education at RMIT. Before that, she was a lecturer in language, literacy and arts education at the University of Melbourne. She is the co-author of the Oxford Companion to Australian Children's Literature and Knowing Readers Unlocking the Pleasures of Reading, and the editor of the long-running young adult review journal Viewpoint on Books for Young Adults. Pam is also the co-editor of the short story collections Things a Map Won't Show You and Where the Shoreline Used to Be for Penguin Random House. Pam was a teacher librarian at the beginning of what is now a long and distinguished career, a former CBCA judge and the recipient of the State Library of Victoria's John Keane Medal for Services to Librarianship. Pam has always been a champion of literary texts, engagement and pleasure. It is my distinct honour to invite her to give a keynote address for this conference. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Susan, for those kind words. <clears throat> Pardon me, what she didn't mention is that uh, she was the other co in three of those books. So we had um, a long-standing uh, association together. Um, I'm delighted to be invited to come and speak to you about books and reading um, today. Uh, a real passion of mine. I'm also delighted to be here at Idihad Stadium in a capacity that's quite different from my usual attendance here, which is as a loyal but often disappointed drama supporter. <laughs> so I think uh, today is going to be a much more positive, well, it already is. Um, and what a wonderful association you have. This seems extraordinary, the support that's being offered to you um, in your libraries. <coughs> So as the title of this talk says, I've chosen today to focus on literary texts and I know there are all sorts um, of other texts, books, non-print, so on, that support uh, what you do in libraries, but I've chosen to have a focus on literary texts because um, in reflecting, and I hope you'll indulge me for a few moments where I do a bit of reflection, considering I'm recently a retired person, um, that, uh, in my experience, we're, we're losing, perhaps, in schools, um, and perhaps in teacher education courses, a focus on literature and the richness of it. So, that's my choice. What is this button? Um, so I've chosen a couple of quotations um, because when I'm thinking about a talk such as this, I find I notice all sorts of things that are relevant. Um, and this quote, and I hope they, that they strike a chord with you, the quote in the, the quotes in the cartoons, this comes from a wonderful book called On Reading, uh, and these photographs come from that book. It's in the, the slides at the end uh, in the reference list, so if anybody wants to follow it up. Um, and, and this quote is from Paul Theroux, the father of the much well known, much more well known Louis Theroux. Do you watch Louis documentaries? Yes, Paul's his father. And he's written an introduction uh, to this wonderful book on reading. Has anyone seen it? It's worth having in your library. Stunning photos of reading in all sorts of contexts around the world. Um, and I hope, I, I really think this quote sets the scene for today, and I hope it resonates with you, that reading requires mental effort, an ability to concentrate, a lively curiosity and intelligence, and a mastery of solitude. Reading is a refuge and an enlightenment. So I hope that resonates with you, because what we want to explore, I think that learning to become a reader Learning to enjoy reading uh, takes time and it takes effort. And all the research, and I'll present some of it to you today, tells us that simple immersion is not enough. We, as experienced readers, really need to be aware of ourselves as readers and model and teach our students um, how to be that engaged reader too. I love this cartoon. So 
but there's the challenge, isn't it? It really does unsettle. Um, and I was reading a review in the age recently of the movie from Penelope Fitzgerald's book, The Bookshop. Has anyone seen it yet? Worth seeing? No, I'm to read the book. Isn't that funny? Why is the book usually better? Um, but she, she was quoted as saying, um, which is also said in the title today, books are pathways to other ways of being, and I think this is so important for students in our schools, to dangerous ideas. How much do we feel that we've got to position books in that way? A life spent reading is not a sheltered life. Um, and I think that's a real challenge, isn't it? Because often, because we do reading in a passive, physical manner, um, sometimes the message is that reading is not as challenging and as exciting as we know it is. All right, so just um, where this talk is coming from. So when thinking about the focus of this keynote, it was apparent that several experience, recent experiences prompted the focus on this theme of the value of deep reading of literary texts. And I hope you will indulge me for a short reflection prompted by my retirement after many years in teacher education. Before we look at the excitement and challenges faced by you as having a central role in children's reading lives. So uh, the first one was reflecting on teacher education and courses for children's literature. Just two contrasting examples. Uh, when I taught uh, at what was the old Melbourne State College a very long time ago, I had four hours of children's literature a week over 12 months. In the last two teacher education courses I have taught at, University of Melbourne and RMIT, there have been no dedicated children's literature subjects in either the postgraduate or the undergraduate. That's a huge shift. Um, in my experience, what I've found over these last, say, 10 years is that literary texts have become positioned as important only in the service of literacy. Um, to support the development of literacy, reading and writing, but rarely as aesthetic objects and effective experiences in their own right. I hope your experience might have been different, but I have seen uh, this enormous change. Um, at RMIT, we always gave our first year undergraduate students a little reading survey about their own attitudes and behaviours. And what we found to our dismay, the literacy staff were all passionate readers themselves. Because many did not read books. Uh, many actively disliked reading. But they saw the development of reading and enjoyment of it as important for the students they were going to teach in their classrooms. So there was this real disjunction between their own reading experiences and what they saw as important in schools. Many of them wanted to enjoy and it became obvious to us that somewhere in their schooling um, they hadn't learned how to become uh, an engaged reader to take pleasure from it. So it wasn't that they didn't want to, um, they felt that they had never been shown how to do that. Not all of them, but a high proportion. So that made me reflect too. Um, and for another article I was writing, I was doing research around this, there's very little research on pre-service teachers and reading. A lot on teachers, but very little on pre-service teachers. Uh, but a Perkins study in the United Kingdom confirmed this, that her pre-service teachers, some of them mature age, so they weren't all very young, like my 18, 19 year olds, uh, identified this problem, that they knew they had, they wanted to encourage pleasure reading and uh, the love of books in their students, but a lot of them hadn't had that experience themselves. So they were aware of that disjunction. Interesting, isn't it? Makes us think. Um, and then there's research around Australian students and reading. Um, did any of your schools participate in curls? 
No, do you know about pearls? It's a big international study on uh, reading uh, with grade four students. And Australia participated in it for the first time in 2011, and then students were tested again or surveyed again um, in 2016. Um, and while there were improvements um, in the Australian performance, we're still not doing wonderfully well, despite the fact that generally our schools are well resourced. Lots of our teachers have master's degrees. So um, the ACR report, I've um, put that in the reference list to see if you to read. But um, I think supporting my argument for the focus today was some some interesting findings, and I'll, if you can bear with me, I'm just going to read you a couple. Um, Pearls discovered that students, this is for Australian students, students who were assigned longer literary texts with chapters on a weekly basis, this is grade four, remember, scored a statistically significant 20 points higher than average than students whose teachers assigned longer books less often and once a week. Um, so, literary texts, reading longer. We could talk about why that might be. What's the nature of literary texts? What's the nature of fiction that we have to hold those um, characters and settings in our minds? And this links very much with the PISA study of secondary students, which found that um, the highest performing students read fiction. Um, only 18% of Australian students had many books in their home. And those who did scored an average of 22 points higher than the average number of books and 80 score points higher than those with few books. Um, this is important research um, and I'm positioning it because I think if you want to argue for particular programs in your school, I always think you're open with the centres. The research says, <coughs> pardon me, um, so I think it's powerful. However, I'm also slightly uneasy about presenting all this research, thanks Susan, all this research that focuses only on performance because reading is much more than that, isn't it? Um, it's part of our culture, it opens us up to our culture, it gives us a great deal of pleasure. But I think um, the focus on this research gives you uh, the power to argue. Um, they also found that 43% of students liked reading, 34% somewhat liked reading, and 16% didn't like reading. But I think more relevant for us is that those who uh, liked, the, the incident of liking and not liking was linked very much to confidence, the messages they're getting about themselves as readers. So, what else have I got here? Um, yes, the Australia Council research um, of 2014, which was a survey of all the research, a literature review of all the research around reading, um, documented sadly a significant fall in children's pleasure reading from 2006 to 2012. And uh, to quote, the author said, the decline occurred more strongly or even exclusively in the reading of traditional paper texts. And when you probe this a bit more, you discover that traditional really means fiction. Uh, so there's lots for us to think about, isn't there? So this is what instigated my focus on literary texts. And also because I was lucky enough, post-retirement, to spend some time with um, my son and family in Cambridge and go to the Cambridge Literary Festival. And um, I heard Jim Crace speak. Have any of you read Harvest? No? If you love a beautifully crafted book with not a word out of place, put Harvest on your list. And he reminded me about language because when he had questions, um, about his focus in writing, he said what he really focuses on is every word in a sentence. You know, and I think we can forget this about writers. 
um, that language is so intrinsic, and it should be for us too. And then I began to think about your important, unique role. You're not teachers in the classroom. You're not having to teach those reading strategies. Um, your role is to impart reading pleasure through a rigorous, meaningful and lasting engagement with the literature written for young people. So that's where it came from. Okay. So the challenge. Um, and I think it's a big one. We want to develop our students from what uh, James Ward, and he's in the reference list too, calls novice readers. And we know our students come in as novice readers. We're experienced readers. So we need to share um, our experiences with them to ones with a greater understanding of deep reading. So what is deep reading? Well, Maria Nikolaeva, um, a critic of children's literature and educator I've used for years, says it's an awareness of ourselves as readers to read away from judgment towards empathy, compassion, communion. <coughs> so being a deep reader is about finding pleasure in the knowledge, experience, memories, feelings and emotions that the reader brings to the reading of the book. And we know that our first reaction to what we read is effective. How has it made us feel? What has it made us think about? Um, so I think the challenge is also to present texts and experience that connect with students' identities. We know that's where we want to start. Children have to find themselves, don't they, in uh, the books we present to them. Um, and it's often, I don't know why I have an aversion for this word, but I love it, relatable. Um, we know they need to relate, but we don't want to just leave them there. We also want to offer readings that might challenge the identities, might move them out of uh, their current situation. Uh, McCarthy and Mohay tell us that readers and writers can come to understand themselves in particular ways as a result of literary engagement. And I'll look at this a bit more. Um, so readers can learn to appreciate the ways in which literature enlightens us. It teaches us about the world and other human conditions. But reading rich texts takes time and effort and practice. So are we up for it in the challenge in a world of instant gratification? So what I wanted to do is just give a brief framing for the rest of this talk around the capabilities in the Victorian curriculum. I know how important the curriculum is um, in schools. I didn't want to focus on uh, the English curriculum or any other aspect in the detail that teachers would need to know about it. But it just seemed to me that the capabilities provide uh, a really rich way to think about the value of literary texts um, in our schools. So I really think when we flip through these capabilities, and I don't plan to read them all. Are you familiar with them? Yeah, pretty much. I thought you would be. You can see that literary texts are ideal sites for developing these capabilities. So, if I moved it on, if I forget to move it on, please tell me. I often do that. You know, I've got three, three slides behind. So please tell me. Um, critical and creative thinking. Well, of course, literary texts position powerfully to develop that. Um, just pulling out some of those words, to take intellectual risks. If the books that we present to our children have those challenges, they'll need, they'll need to think deeply. Uh, they'll need to draw on all their knowledge and be extended. Build self-awareness, capacities for reflection. We need to build thoughtful readers. So we're reading is thinking. So that capacity for reflection should be built into all the encounters that we provide uh, for students 
with books written for them. Critical and creative thinking capability. Your imagination is going 100 miles an hour when you're reading, isn't it? There are just black marks on the page. You're imagining those characters, visualising those settings, feeling the terror of someone who is under threat. So very much so, literary texts support critical and creative thinking. Ethical capability, again. Just think, I'm sure at your tables, if I gave you time, you could come up immediately with a range of texts for children that raise ethical issues. It's embedded, isn't it, in the text written for children. Ethical reasoning, we do that. We test ourselves out against how characters behave in the book. Would we do that? Would we think that? Would we be capable of that? Um, open, cultivate open-mindedness. Very much literature opens us up to all sorts of experiences we don't have in our daily lives and a lot that we certainly wouldn't want to have, but it's important to know about. Intercultural capability. There is no argument here, is there? Um, that we need to be conscious of the diversity in our schools and make sure that the texts that we choose to have in our libraries, and particularly those that we share and promote, um, have respect for cultural diversity within the community. Um, and it's often a challenge. I mean, it's very easy, and I can think when I've been guilty of it, to choose books to share that reflect my worldview, that reflect my experience. And often we have to go and seek out those that reflect uh, the experiences of the children in front of us. Very important, reflect on how intercultural experiences influence attitudes, values and beliefs. Not everyone has the same worldview as I do, as you do. Um, how, do how do we understand the development of those different views? Um, the importance of acceptance and appreciation of cultural diversity. Surely that's a given in our current diverse society. And again, I'm sure lots of books are springing to your mind when you're seeing this through. Yeah, I'm sure lots of them Personal and social capability, the expression of emotions. I can't argue um, strongly enough for the role of literature in this. Um, having been in teacher education over a long time, and I have great respect for uh, Alan Luke and Peter Freebody, we know the four resources model, teaching very much foregrounded in that is a critical approach. And I know we need to develop a critical capacity in our students so that texts don't impose um, ideas on them. But I think for a long time that the critical took preeminence. And the effective, the emotional, which is what makes us readers, um, took, took a back seat. In fact, I can be in classes where I remember um, people thinking it was naive to love something, to respond to something. Is any of this resonating with you? No? Fortunately, you've escaped all this. But here it is in the capabilities. Uh, we've got to enjoy that expression of emotions and look at why we feel what we do. Resilience, how important is that? It's almost a catchphrase, particularly for children, isn't it? And lots of texts build understanding of resilience. Who's read Figgy in the World? Yes. What is that? Pardon? You're ready, Yeah. Empathy, um, I'm going to deal with very, very important, isn't it? To put ourselves in the position of um, others. Uh, respectful relationships. So, literary texts, aren't they prime sites for the promotion of boys? So, teaching reading 
and breathing itself happens in diverse contexts. We can't escape that in contemporary society. So our context is increasingly globalised and diverse, and it's a very 21st century society. Technology, social media, US presidents who tweet before breakfast. Um, so it's a complex um, and Yeah, that'll do. I'm not going to say anything else. Complex world. So I really think this is uh, all the more reason for us to take a step back, to slow down, and to look at what literary text can offer us. It um, goes without saying that a capacity for empathy and compassion is essential for social cohesion, cohesion and inclusivity. And we can think of um, examples where this is tested all the time. We get it in our faces in the media. So I believe, and I hope you believe too, when you reflect on yourself as a reader, and I think a lot of strength comes from that reflection. Um, we're experienced readers. We don't often think about what it is that we do uh, that makes reading easy for us. And I think it's very powerful to reflect on that and um, to use ourselves as models. So I really believe that thoughtful, purposeful reading of literary texts provides insights into lives beyond the reader's personal experience. And when I say this, there's one text that I think is extraordinarily um, ubiquitous, and that is the Diary of Anne Frank. Who has read it? Heaps of you. Yeah, taking us inside uh, that girl's mind. So we certainly wouldn't want to be her, um, but we get that insight. And again, I'm sure if I asked you, you could bring up a whole range of books. Sister Heart, who's read Sister Heart? Uh, bring here lots that um, come to mind. And I think these, why reading is so important, because these precarious encounters are especially valuable to young readers whose worlds are necessarily limited. They haven't had our life experiences, have they? So they need to have their world expanded through uh, literary texts. So I think perceptive explorations of well-chosen literary texts provide opportunities for the expansion of individual reading repertoires and the widening of worldviews. And I'm sure you can think in your own experiences where you've seen this happen. Um, I remember if we go back to Fiddy in the World, sharing that with my first year undergraduates who really had no idea that such a different society could exist to their own. They couldn't understand how that little girl um, could do what she did. No one, just a sense that they thought, I think perhaps the rest of the world was just like Australia. So, <clears throat> reading engagement and enjoyment are fundamental to what we do. They should underpin everything. This is what it's about, creating readers who expect to take pleasure from the books that they read and that we share with them. And again, this is where the research is powerful. There's a proven link between reading for pleasure outside of school and academic achievement. Use this research to argue for reading programs for lots of reading aloud, silent reading. Um, there is no research in the English language, at least, because I haven't read any others, that disputes this. What we don't know, and we can't know, is which is the chicken and which is the egg, because we can't do that sort of experiment on humans. But there is no uh, research that disputes that. Another powerful um, piece of research, I'm not sure if you know about it, it's available on the web and I've got it in the reference list, is um, the report Reading to Young Children. It was published in 2012. It was a longitudinal study 
conducted by the Department of Education and the University of Melbourne. And they looked at four to five-year-olds and traced them through until they were 10 or 11. And um, the researchers themselves were surprised that they found this direct causal effect of reading to children at a young age on their schooling outcomes. So children at age four to five who were read to every day had um, the effect was the same as being 12 months older when they were in uh, when they were age 10 or 11. Uh, if they were read to three or four days a week, the effect was six months. It's interesting research to read how powerful it is reading to children before school. And we know that a lot of our students are going to come to school not having had that experience. So that's where we need to draw on the research of the wonderful Mari Clare, <coughs> pardon me, who talks about make-up opportunities. And you may well need to do this in your libraries. Lots of reading too. Um, and who doesn't love it? Everyone loves being read to. Uh, very powerful research. So if you're interested, um, that research is available on the web. Allied to this is the research around developing empathy and theory of mind. Do you know about theory of mind? It's the capacity we as humans have to look at the behaviour of someone and intuit what it is they are feeling and thinking. Important to think of those capabilities, fundamental to all of those. Um, and I'll present some of this research to you. You might be interested in reading further. That stories have the power to bring emotions to life and to help children understand their own feelings and those of others. I'm sure that's your experience. Have you ever been at home by yourself and been reading something scary and are too scared to go down the dark passage to go to the toilet. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, do. Or what? You know, embarrassingly, reaching for your hanky on the train. Um, so I guess my strong message here is the benefits of reading go far beyond literacy. Certainly we use the research to argue for our reading programs to support academic performance and literacy, but let's not forget the benefits are much greater than that. And an emerging body of research, and this is very interesting and I think it's going to grow, um, highlights the power of stories to help children consider their own and other people's emotions and states of mind. We know that as experienced readers, yeah, this might seem very obvious, but it's not always presented to children. Um, often reading strategies are taught, and I know I had to teach them comprehension strategies, are sometimes taught as ends in themselves, rather than in the greater service of helping children to find pleasure um, in what they're reading and become engaged readers. Back to the wonderful Maria Nikolaeva at Cambridge University. She found in her research, and amazingly, the university gave her six years to do that research. Reading fiction provides an excellent training for young people in developing and practicing empathy and theory of mind. That is, understanding how other people feel and think. Very powerful. It's called, that branch of criticism is called cognitive criticism, and it's a new one in children's literature if you're interested in pursuing it. Uh, and what she, what her research argues for very strongly is that we present to children what we learn from reading. Now, I know as a teacher educator, uh, some of the strategies, and you might be familiar with this, is we are always taught to make uh, to help children make connections with what they're reading. Are you familiar with text-to-text, text-to-self, text-to-world? Right. Great, but think how limited 
a lot of that children's knowledge and experience is to bring those understandings to a text. It always seemed to me quite quite a demanding thing. Um, so what Nicola Yeager would say is, let's shift the focus to what that text can teach us about the human condition in the world. Now, I find this fascinating and could bang on about it all day, but I won't. I'll restrict myself. Neuroscience and reading. Uh, recent neuroscience research is absolutely fascinating, I think, in terms of what it tells us about reading. I think what instinctively uh, a lot of us understood, and now we have the research to support it. Um, so just some brief examples, and it's on the reference list. Researchers at Amora University in Atlanta in the US found that fiction tricks our brains into thinking we are part of the story. You must remember that. I remember when Aragorn died in Lord of the Rings. I could not go on. My world ended. And I had to flip through to see his name a bit further on. And then I could start again. Um, we know that, don't we? We have conversations about characters in books as if they were real. Uh, Carnegie Mellon University discovered that when you get lost in a book, what a wonderful experience that is, your brain lives through the characters at a neurological level. So it's as if it were happening to you. And the wonderful Shirley Bryce Heath, I'm sure you would have um, had her distinguished collection of research presented to you in terms of reading. she writes about mirror neurons that have been identified by neuroscientists, um, which demonstrate that the brain perceives and reacts to real experiences as if they were being enacted in the real world. So those emotions that we feel, the fear, the terror, the delight, uh, the outrage, are uh, uh, Jury reading, I do And Marianne Wolf's wonderful book, she's a neuroscientist and she's looked at how reading happens in the brain. It's called Proust and Sweet. It's in the reference list. Read it. She says, the experience of reading is not so much an end in itself as it is our best vehicle <coughs> to a transformed mind and literally and figuratively to a changed brain. So reading has that power. And she documents the complex cognitive, linguistic, and affective transformations that happen in the brain during reading. Don't you think it's fascinating? Okay. Yeah, you'd much rather read it than listen to me. <laughs> okay, so that's just some of the research, and it was a bit of a whirlwind tour through it. But um, and I make no apology for putting the research there because I think it really does empower you in terms of the sorts of programs you want to offer. So what are the implications? Um, I can remove myself from this, and I'm a retired person now, but what are the implications for you? And I think it all begins with choice, the choice of texts. What do you choose? to share with your readers? What do you promote in your library? What do you recommend? On what basis are you choosing? From what repertoire? How much reading children's books do you do yourself? The bigger the repertoire, the better the choice you can make. Um, I think it's nutty to abandon adult reading. That would be stupid. You cannot live in the mind of a 10-year-old all day, all night. And it's even worse for a 14 and 15-year-old, believe me, those 17 years of viewpoint. But we need to have those children's books, don't we? And they're beautifully written, a lot of them. Absolute pleasure. In an hour and an hour and a half, we've had a wonderful literary and um, life experience. So, of course, we begin with children's interests and preferences. We must allow them to confirm their identity in what they read. And we can think of where they happen to us. 
but we don't want to abandon them there. I think it's too easy to have that as our mantra. I've got to find something that the children will relate to. No, you don't. Not all the time. Because if you do that, you're giving them books where their own world is put, just reflected back to them. Um, you know what you read. You know... Um, <coughs> pardon me, drink again. All the experiences you've had beyond your own circumstances uh, through reading. And of course, you want that broad experience to happen for your students too. So you need to choose books. Um, and of course, not all the time. But you need to include in your choice those that are going to challenge and extend. Readers need to expand their worldviews. They want to. They want to find out. They're curious. And reading is about being curious and satisfying that curiosity. So there's a whole range, just some covers I downloaded. Um, there are so many story treehouse books. Children could live there for quite some time. Um, and that might be exactly what they want to do. But I think we also know, if you, think, if you reflect on your own reading, and this might be something nice that happens in FYI, reading journeys, you could probably think of a book that perhaps a teacher, another adult, uh, teacher librarian put in your hands that you would never have chosen on your own. That was um, one of the best you read. So, purposeful selection. I love this quote from Short. And I think it's something that we need to keep in our minds. Reading is devalued if the books we read are not worthy of the effort of reading. And I think about this often um, when I hear the mantra for boys, we've got to give them something fast-paced, something with not very difficult vocabulary. Why? What's the message of beginning them? You're just going to read these fairly superficial texts. I think it really undersells boys. Sure, that might be what they want to read some of the time, but I'm sure they want the sorts of rich texts and experiences um, that we all know about. When we read, it's nothing of significance or importance. Students can discover the many pleasures of reading, and their many pleasures, if you don't know them, read Nodelman and Reimer, The Pleasures of Children's Literature. They're all listed there. When they are treated to books with authentic, rich language, it's so important. How much do you notice it? I'm going to share some examples in a moment. And convincing stories about life. So it isn't just the ideas in the book that's important, it's how well they're written. Um, that wonderful use of language. So reading is thinking. Um, and as I said to you earlier, sometimes in classroom, reading is presented as mastering a set of comprehension strategies. Yeah? Um, important, but that's only a means to an end. The end of finding pleasure, um, of taking all the benefits of reading. So I really believe that students need texts that take them beyond their own world and circumstances, they need texts that invite the reader to question and think. Reading stretches your brain. Um, and we shouldn't be frightened of those texts. It's the role of literature to question. Too often, I think, in secondary schools, might be your experience, literature was positioned as the answer to questions. What was the colour of the shop on page 18? Morris Gladstone or something, or comprehension questions, who remembers those at the end of each chapter. The nonsense. Is that what readers naturally do? When you finish reading, do you think I just must set myself some comprehension questions? <laughs> no. So we always need to proceed from what it is that we as experience readers naturally do. And importantly, they need texts with rich evocative language. And we know that that's going to help their literacy, but it's also going to help their love of language. The great Aidan Chambers says, how can you read what you haven't heard? 
So reading uh, books with rich vocabulary is important. So I've just chosen, because I'm the keynote, I get to choose some favourites. That's my, my priority. So in terms of rich language, and I think children need it from their earliest encounters with books. If you think of young children, um, I have a grandson and a little two-and-a-half-year-old. I babysit all day Friday and know just how much children love open, shut them, open, shut them, no intimacy spider, all that uh, uh, finger plays, rhymes, chants. We need to build on that once they come into our classrooms. Do you know Bear and Chalk by the Sea? Wonderful book, isn't it? Go back and just have a look at the richness of the language. It's a charming story of a friendship between two very different friends. So here is diversity happening in a symbolic way, the, the gentle way that literature can do that. And there's a lovely moment just before the final page where you can wonder what on earth Chalk is going to say to Bear what sort of friends are going to be. So there's a, this lovely moment of prediction before that last page. But go back in and have a look at the wonderful language in this text. Rhythm, repetition. Look at this simile. Wind as warm as honey toast. Um, metaphor, that's a holiday sky. Alliteration, assonance, onomatopoeia. Flop, flop, scratch, scratch, pick, poke, sniffing and licking. Now, you may not choose to, to share those terms with children, but why not? Five-year-olds can name, you know, the protodon and all the rest. Why not wonderful words like assonance and alliteration? But that book is full of rich language. Other favourites, and I'm putting up all these here because I'm sure they're in your libraries. I share them with young children and their appeal is perpetual. Who remembers King? And a little duck on the wise-eyed boat on the Axie River. That book cannot be read aloud badly. Marjorie Flack has written it so beautifully with its rhythm, its intonation. You can't read it badly. It's a beautiful read aloud. Who remembers Tiki Tiki Tembo, No Sa Rembo, Cherry Berry Bucci, Peter Perry Tembo? Yeah? Uh, wonderful story, beautiful um, Chinese style illustrations about why Chinese boys now have long names. Do you remember? Because Tiki Tiki Tembo, No Sa Rembo, Cherry Berry Bucci, Peter Perry Tembo fell into the well. And when his little brother Chang ran to get help, he couldn't get out the name. He nearly, Tiki Tiki Dembo, Nasa Rembo, Cherry Berry Ruchi, Perry Pembo nearly died. And Ferdinand, who doesn't know the story of the little boy who just wanted to sit and smell the flowers? Do you know it? Um, and this is an example of rich literature. It's beautifully written, it's witty. As anything. Um, Ferdinand's mother is very caring, even though she is a cow. Um, and, but it models the layers, the metaphoric way in which even simple stories for children can operate. It was published, believe it or not, in 1937. It's set in Spain. Clearly, one of its themes is pacifism. What's it about? What was happening in 1937 in Spain? The Spanish Civil War. So layers in this discourse. Okay, when children are ready to move on from picture books, there's a wealth um, of wonderful rich texts to choose from. Um, and I just think this is where we need to think about selection because in the honey and bear stories, do you know them? by Ursula Dubasarsky, who I think is probably one of our finest writers for children, without a doubt. Um, there are these gentle, <coughs> little 
moral and ethical fables, and they just open up the possibility for discussion. And I'm only going to read you the first page and the last page of this story. Go and read the rest of yourselves, but you'll see how beautifully it's written. One day, Bear did something bad. He did the bad thing while Honey was sitting in the garden. Honey is a bird. Bear took his bag of marbles and dropped them one by one down the plug hole of the kitchen sink. This was very bad, but he kept doing it until all the marbles were gone. Oh dear, said Bear. <coughs> On the last page, Bear never told Honey that he was the one who dropped the marbles down the plug hole. Bear never told anyone at all. It was his secret. What a wonderful story to talk to children about, don't you think? The opinions they're going to have in between, we get the effects on poor honey of having uh, the sink blocked up. But it's, I think it's wonderful that our writers are presenting such thoughtful and provocative texts for us to share. Um, other examples? And I did have, I was going to read you um, a couple, but again, and this is me having the choice to push my own barrow, I think these two female writers are probably our finest writers for young people. And they write across the age group. You can introduce them to children via picture books, early texts, and then they can go on to read the quite challenging <coughs> children's novels and young adult novels later. Do you know about Sadie and Rats? About Hannah has two bad hands? It's a true story. It's a story of um, Sonia Hartnett's niece who has bad hands. I didn't want to read you all this, but I think I'm running out of time. Well, maybe. <laughs> and tell you a little story. There is someone in our house I forgot to mention, baby boy. I wish he was a dog. Baby boy is four years old. Four years is a long time. It seems like baby boy has been around forever. Everyone says baby boy is a good boy, but these are things that baby boy does. Goes into my room, changes the TV channel, uses all the coloured felt tips. When he does these things, Sadie and rats wake up. Wonderful illustrations by Anne James. They jump onto baby boy's head and try to rub his ears off. Baby boy doesn't like it. He bellows like a banshee bull. What a sentence. Baby boy bellows and then I get into trouble, even though baby boy caused the trouble in the first place. If he didn't annoy me, Sadie and Rats wouldn't have to rub his ears off. Mum says I must be patient. She says baby boy is only little. She says Sadie and Rats should do yoga. She said, come to major mum's she says they might learn to relax. <laughs> <laughs> brilliant little book. And I have to tell you a story. I gave it to uh, a friend of mine's son. He was in grade one to read. And he came back and with the insight of children and said, I love this book because it's got a lot of words in it. I've got to get this right. A lot of words in it I don't know, but I will know. <laughs> Um, do you know Becky from the Two Gorillas? Oh, this is wonderful. Um, Becky has toy gorillas, and you just have to read it. So child-centered, beautifully written by Ursula Bielsaski, and a very curious child. So one thing she wonders about her stuffed toys is, I wonder what would happen when you freeze a gorilla. <laughs> so she wraps it in glad wrap, and well, not glad wrap, no ant um, in plastic wrap and puts it in the freezer. But there's lots of other things that happen to these gorillas. Beautifully written. Uh, just think bellows like a banshee bull. Um, these are texts for young readers and yet the language is rich. Diversity of experience is important and there's, again, there's a wealth of books and the beauty of children's books is that the sort of big lessons of life, if you like, often happen metaphorically and symbolically. 
So they don't have to be um, didactic in any shape or form. Do you know Nobody Owns the Moon? Just a beautiful book by Toby Riddle, whimsical, um, powerful, uh, puzzling. I've had undergraduates talk themselves into understanding with this book. They read it and they think they don't know, and then I ask them to think about what's happening in it, and they, they read themselves into it. Sadly, I discovered it's out of print. I can't believe that. But I'm sure it's in your libraries. Map of Dreams by Ulrich Shulovich, uh, a true story. Uh, do you know this one? Beautifully illustrated. Uh, of his journey as... Um, a refugee and the power of the imagination to sustain him. And then Bob Graham's beautiful How the Sun Got to Coco's House. The sun just going around kissing all those diverse um, places in the world. So reading demanding visual texts is we have to work at it. There's no question. But what we need to do, as I said again, is slow the reading, enjoy scrutinising the images and words over and over, even when we don't really understand them. We enjoy that. We enjoy being able to see more on further contemplation. Do you know Suri's Wall? Yes. Beautiful book, isn't it? Um, and that change in illustration. Uh, the open ending. There's lots of space in there for young readers to interpret, uh, to talk and discuss. So I think we need to go on this reading journey. Uh, we need to start with maybe. Um, maybe Suri feels different from the others because maybe she's making up stories about what's over the wall because. Um, so it's a wandering, it's an exploration. Um, and I think what we need to do and model for our young readers is that we're going to abandon that theory if it doesn't hold up. Sometimes young readers think good readers know exactly how the story's going to go from the first page. We don't. We don't. We work with the clues that the author gives us, author and illustrator. We might have to fill the gaps they don't tell us about. But I think if we do this exploration, this nice slow reading uh, with students with well-chosen text, they'll begin to understand the process. Um, and we might be happy with several interpretations. Why not? Uh, most polysemic books, books have more than one meaning, so we can be happy with multiple interpretations of them. Um, just briefly, do you know the rules of summer? wonderful book by John Tan. You can go back to so many times and see so much more in it. And I'll just tell you a little anecdote. Um, with the first years in the class, each week we would share a picture book with them, discuss it, and then they'd be, they could choose one that we brought to class to discuss. And this week, um, I would give them a strategy for thinking about the book. And this week's strategy was just come up with two questions you've got um, about the book. So we want you to think, you know, the literature prompts questions. And uh, a group of three young women uh, chose the rules of summer because we had shared uh, the arrival earlier. Um, they knew of Sean Tan's reputation. They were very attracted by the artwork on the cover. And when I was going around the room, I noticed they were sitting there with this book face down closed on their table. No conversation. I said, oh, what's happened here? And that's all we don't get. And I said, well, you're not going to get it if the book is closed. And it was quite confronting to me because they didn't have a mechanism. They didn't have a strategy to go back into that book um, and try and puzzle it out. So I said to them, you know, about the questions and we started talking and I said, was there anything in particular that you noticed? And each of them had noticed the birds on each page. So they went back into the book focusing on the birds and when I came and discussing, you know, excitedly looking, and when I came back at the end of that class, they all had a question about the symbolism of those birds. So 
Um, I think for them, and they were very pleased with themselves, it was the first time they had insight. And um, we don't provide for insight on the um, we don't provide for insight unless we choose books that are going to allow for manoeuvring in the book, book, book. So, literary texts can be and often are deliberately ambiguous. Don't be afraid of them. They open up possible meanings and therefore prompt thinking rather than suggesting answers. So don't worry about not knowing the answers. Teachers worry about that too much. They feel they've got to know the answers. I know my undergrads felt that. Trust the book. You've chosen it. You've got a reason for choosing it. You know your students. Trust the reader's responses. Accept all of them. Um, some are going to be much more insightful than others. But um, is that Aidan Chambers, Susan, who talks about everything being honourably reportable? Probably, you're the expert on him, did your on him. Um, so you trust the reader's responses and trust your ability as an experienced reader to steer uh, the journey to understand it. And leave some questions unresolved. You can come back, it'll happen. You know, a child will say, you know that book we were talking about the other day? Well, I thought, um, so leave them open. So we need to play the game of reading. That's your role, not comprehension strategies. We know that neither the author nor the reader makes all the rules, but both need to contribute. Readers need to know the way the texts work, what the writer takes for granted, the reader will understand. Um, and if I hadn't played on so long, I would have shared some excerpts. Do you know Bear Hunt? Brilliant, brilliant book by Anthony Brown. Changes again. If you, uh, there are lots of clues in the illustration to what change is going to happen. And David Miller's wonderful refugees is saying to us from that cover: you can only understand this book symbolically. There are no refugees there. There's a boat. There's ducks. There's a woman. So an engaged reader is someone who enjoys and understands literally and inferentially what they read. They expect to enjoy it. They expect to learn from what they read about the world, the human condition, others different to themselves. They enjoy thinking and noticing, noticing the language, noticing uh, the insights that the author has. Um, they enjoy playing the game of reading, filling the gaps. Good texts always have literary gaps. They never tell us anything, everything. They expect the reader to be active. And Joyce sharing responses. So I flip through these. Oh, look at that. What didn't tell me? So a reading school library is one that encourages reading of interesting, unusual, evocative books that inexperienced readers might not choose for themselves. It fosters students' responses, values them and their significance, and wants students to enjoy thinking and talking about what they read. And there's some regular examples of mine. Do you know uh, Rebecca Stead? If you don't know that book, read it. The minute you finish it, you'll think, how did I not see all those clues? And you want to go straight back in. Uh, the Memory Bank, I think, uh, she is Roald Dahl's successor. Have you read it? The family who dumps the, the little girl by the side of the road. One story is told in illustrations, one's told in the ring text. Brilliant. Every primary school child should have Tuck Everlasting Share with them. Sorry, write that down. <laughs> Do you know it? A brilliant book by Natalie Abbott. Some of the best books on our shelves are the old ones. And what do children tell us? Wise children. And Chambers, don't forget his works, his three sharings. So we don't have children second-guessing what we think 
the book is about. We open up the theirs. And then you get wonderful children. We don't know what we think about a book until we've talked about it. That's what the critics say. There's an April. I didn't really like the book or understand it until we had our talk. It made me understand a lot more. All the comments people made made the story come alive for me because I didn't get it at first. So sharing, hugely important, isn't it? Um, nearly there. Uh, more wise children. You wouldn't understand this book if you read it on your own. If you read the book with other people, you get loads more ideas, and the different ideas make you agree and disagree. That's a reading classroom when there's healthy disagreement. You have to keep rewinding to understand. How good is that? Uh, to get ideas in your head, you have to keep moving forward and back. These are children who are not talking about reading strategies. They're talking about genuine reading behaviours to take pleasure. So it would be pleased to find slide. The reading experiences we offer impact children's lives. There's no doubt about that. So it exists in a postmodern world where thoughtful, analytic and questioning readings of all texts are increasingly important. So I think we need to slow the reading, enjoy the exploration, model what we as experienced and thoughtful readers do, activate our theory of mind, and talk about what we learn from literature. And in the sharing, we create thoughtful, engaged readers who are avid members of the reading community for the rest of their lives. And there's the reference list. You can copy it down. It's so large. Okay, thank you very much.